It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only, call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 Three one three eight one. Four five six seven, or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you to the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, January 8th, 2015. Thank you for being with us tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you tonight. Looking across forward to the our table study. from me tonight again uh, yeah. as we continue to work on our new setup here. And Monty, you're, you're at the table with us now too monty's here behind the boards monty thanks for being here i got to sit with the adults yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah you know there whenever there's a big family dinner the kids have to sit over at that little yeah. table over on the side yeah. and we've had you sitting over at the side table but we're bringing you on in now you have arrived up. you've arrived monty and uh well we're glad that you have arrived here with us as well and we look forward to hearing from you at 877-381-4567 email questions at collegeview.com you're listening to us live on the program tonight as brendan randy uh, arthur and uh Cindy R is in the chat room so far, and if you and, a, and several others, who, and are not others logged in. who aren't logged in, so we don't know who you are. But if you want to sign in, you can chat with other listeners there tonight. Yeah, we'd love for you to give yourself sort of a um, a, a handle. A handle. That's a, a hand, good. That's a good a way to put it. CB lingo there. Yeah, uh, yeah, give yourself a handle so we yeah. can kind of keep track of who's saying what and join us in the discussion. Aaron has signed in. Aaron, Aaron took our encouragement and, and signed in. Thank From you, Baton Rouge. Aaron, great, yep. great to see you. He's got an email with us here tonight, too, so we'll okay. be looking at his comments. We're doing listener smorgasbord tonight, Jacob. All right, this uh, is one of my favorites. Yeah, I, I like these. What, what we do, sometimes listeners uh, send in an idea that uh, constitutes uh, a whole program's worth of discussion. And, and I got a couple in the stack, Jacob, that probably are going to justify that. Okay. But sometimes people ask a question that's just pretty straightforward, can be answered in a relatively short amount of time, and so we sort of save those up and, and put them together into a program like we're going to do tonight. We've done it often. Our regular listeners are familiar with this. Uh, we're just going to – they're not related questions, but they're all interesting. We're just going to spend some time on each one. All right. Uh, we'll look forward to those. The first one, I think, is yeah. the simplest. Yeah. Earlier today to our update list, we sent out these questions seeking input. We've got quite a bit of email feedback today. We'll try to include as much of those as we can. I can't promise we'll get them all. But um, if you're not getting our update, send us an email to questions at collegeview.com. Say, put me on a list. We'll do it. If you were on that list, you would have got these questions. We're not going to read them all ahead of time. We're just going to take them one at a time. The first one, as you said, Jacob, I think is the easiest. Why does the Church of Christ not practice the tithe? Mm-hmm. Pretty, I think a pretty simple answer to that one. Some some questions are more involved, but that one's pretty straightforward. It is. And Randy is in Schwartz Creek, Michigan, where he says it is more than cold there tonight. Randy, we sympathize with you, and uh, you didn't do a very good job of keeping the cold to yourself. It's down here, too. He says uh, we're told to give on the first day of the week as we have prospered. He references 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Paul sets forth a pattern there. Notice this. And concerning the collection that is for the saints, as I directed to the assemblies of Galatia, so also ye do ye. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay by him in store, uh, treasuring up whatever he may have prospered, that uh, when I come, then collections may not be made. He references Young's literal translations there. 
But uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, Paul says they were to lay by in store on the first day of the week. Now, notice there's no set percentage given there. As, and this is in contrast to what we had in the Old Testament. A very definite percentage was given uh, for the people in the Old Testament that they were to give, but no percentage given here. And he also says here, in ver- uh, he says, we're told to give as we purpose in our heart, and God loves a cheerful giver, and we're not to give out of sorrow or out of necessity. He uh, references 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Thank you, Randy, for that. All right. Uh, so basically, Randy has said, because we're doing what the New Testament commands, and implied is we're not doing what the Old Testament commands because we're not under that law anymore. The tithe was a law for the children of Israel under the law of <clears throat> Moses in right. the Old Testament. And so they gave a tithe of all that they prospered. And uh, that. That was very literal and exacting and a specified amount. Uh, Some have tried to carry that over into the Christian age. The New Testament never commands that. I always liked the answer that an old preacher gave when he was asked, do we have to give 10%? Of course, remember the tithe was 10%. Mm -hmm. The old preacher was asked, do we have to give 10%? And he said, oh, no, absolutely not. That's not, that's not in the New Testament. He says, we're free to give a whole lot more. Yeah. You know, so I'm afraid sometimes people look at, oh, we don't have to give 10%. So we don't, we don't even have to give close to that percentage of our earnings. Uh, when I think a generous Christian would think, that's really just a starting place for consideration. It's not, you know, it's not, it's not the upper limit. It ought to just be a place to start our consideration. All right. But well, realistically, in the law of Moses, that wasn't an upper limit either. That was they, they had to give a tithe, but they were also free will offerings that they had to make. They were sacrifices that they had to make. So there was a lot more than was, just a tithe that they had to give too. And, and as you said, some were free will. They could yeah. give more if they wanted to of various things. So. Yeah. Um, uh, Stephen uh, answers, uh, why, uh, why does the Church of Christ not practice tithe? As I taught early on in my, as I was taught early on in my Christian studies, we don't tithe for two reasons. The tithe was done away with with the law of Moses, and it's not mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, so that's what he was taught. Uh, but then he goes on to say that he doesn't necessarily believe that anymore. He said he was taught that when he was first became a Christian, but he not, doesn't necessarily believe that. He goes into some detail uh, arguing that the tithe was not done away with the law of Moses because it didn't originate with the law of Moses. Uh, it is interesting, though I don't think it was a law. He references 400 years earlier when Abraham was tithing to Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Yep. Uh, but that, that, there was no command there at all. I mean, we can't even there. It's, it's not, it wasn't, I don't know that it was commanded of Abraham. It's what Abraham did. Uh, you can't read there that he was commanded to do that. Yeah. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna disagree with Stephen on the fact that it is somehow some sort of an eternal law of God. Uh, if, if it's binding upon Christians today, we're gonna have to find it in the New Testament. We're not gonna find it anywhere. I don't care if it was commanded of Abraham. I don't think you could prove it was, but if, even if you could prove that it was commanded of Abraham and that Moses commanded it of the Israelites, I still wouldn't grant that it's commanded of Christians today because it's not in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not in the doctrine of Christ. And and so uh, Stephen goes into some involved reasoning about that, but I, in all due respect, I just have to disagree with his conclusion. All right. Uh, thank you for that, Stephen. Uh, but now we do things, uh, Monty, we, we look to the Old Testament for principles of uh, how God looked at things in the past, and uh, if we 
we can look at the tithe and see, well, that seemed reasonable to God. And each one of us is going to have to make up our minds as we purpose in our hearts. And so that may help us come to a point where we feel like you know we can be at peace with what we're doing. Yeah, I think I think it's a good starting place. Yeah. I got to go back to Stephen's argument that the tithe wasn't done away when the law of Moses was done because it predated the law of Moses. <clears throat> well, you could make the same argument about circumcision. That's true. Circumcision That's true. was commanded. We know circumcision circumcision yeah. was commanded to Abraham. Yeah, right. It was included in the law of Moses. Is that a universal principle that we need to be practicing today? We know specifically in the New Testament when people tried to bind that, they were condemned for doing so. So I think that line of reasoning falls. We can okay. make the same argument with animal sacrifices. We know that Abraham was instructed to give animal sacrifices, and even if you wanted to go to an extreme on it, he was commanded to offer his son Isaac. So a human sacrifice, you could say, was predated the law of Moses, too. But we don't try to bring those things over. Yeah. So there's no logical reason to bring tithe in either. Yeah. I we're, see in the chat room. We're going to have to work on that camera angle. We can see the bathroom now when Monty's talking. <laughs> uh, I see Aaron in the chat room making the same point I just made. I don't know whether he got his point in before I did or not, but we're both thinking along the all same right, lines right. about circumcision. Yeah. I think that destroys that argument that – that Stephen was trying to make. All right. Chris in the U.K. says, okay, I'm not Church of Christ, but are these possible reasons? It is not a New Testament practice. Yes, that is a possible reason, Chris. He says, I'm not of the nation of Israel. Well, that would be true, too, because the law of Moses was given to the, the nation of Israel. Uh, if it is for us, then how are we uh, to how are we to tithe when it is of your livestock or produce of the ground? My church hardly would want 10% of my grass or hedge clippings. Well, there you go, Chris. All right. Uh, Brendan in the chat room says, one fact a lot of denominations don't like when they hear that the tithe was a yearly tithe, not a weekly one, and it was a tithe of money. It was not a tithe of money, but of all that one had produced in that year. Yeah, okay. Uh, I think that's true. There'd be a lot of practical – in in our day, there'd be a lot of practical – Effective impossibilities to tithing, or certainly make it harder. I wouldn't say it's impossible; it would make it a lot harder. But uh, it's just not—it's not for us. It's right. not in the New Testament. All right, uh, Aaron. Uh, Aaron says tithing. Uh, Aaron is in the chat room in his email. He also has sent. He says tithing is a specification in the Old Testament, the law which was given specifically to the Jews. The church is instructed to cast out the covenant given at Sinai, Galatians four verses twenty-one through thirty-one. Because we're not the children of that covenant. The New Testament is normative for the church, and the instruction of the New Testament is that we give as we prospered, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1, as we cheerfully purpose in our hearts, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Even though the New Testament is not specific about the amount, I do believe that God expects us to be liberal in how we use our earthly treasure, Luke 16, verse 9, and being stingy because God didn't say how much is proof of a faulty heart. Thank you for that, Aaron. All right, I think we got that one nailed down. As you said, I think that's the easy one. Let's save some time, Jacob. Let's go to our first break, and we'll sort of divide these questions up with our breaks tonight well, in case we we'll run a little over. We'll catch this one a little early then. Yeah, let's catch this one a little early, and, we, and we'll come back with a question about the Apocrypha. How should we view the books of the Apocrypha? Okay, and uh, extra credit if you want to spell that tonight. Uh, we'll take a break, and we'll get your thoughts. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues right after that. These guys are doing all of the talking. We need to hear from you. Call in now. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Hello, everyone. 
I'm Brett Haynes. I'm a member of the College View Church of Christ. A lot of people in the religious world today tell us that as long as our heart is right and we truly love God, we can do whatever we want in our service to Him. They say that what we do doesn't matter because God is only interested in our heart. I believe they have it all wrong. True, God is interested in our hearts, but He's also interested in our actions. One reason why is because our actions describe the true condition of our heart. This is what Jesus taught in Matthew 12, verse 34, when he said, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. So I believe that if we are doing whatever we want to in our service and are not serving God exactly like he has asked, then our heart is not right before God. The members of the College View Church of Christ are committed to making sure that both our hearts and our actions are pleasing to God. If you're interested in doing the same, we encourage you to join us for worship this Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. Here's some quotes worth pondering. The challenge is to carry out a good resolution long after the excitement of the moment has passed. This one resolution I will make and try always to keep it to rise above the little things. What the new year brings to you will depend a great deal on what you bring to the new year. What we have to remember is that there's still much we can do. We can change our minds. We can start over. The notion that it's too late to do anything is foolishness. Man, wish I'd said that. Broadcasting around the world with truths that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. Now we're back on the program tonight as we talk about various listener questions and uh, with uh, listeners from or answers from various listeners tonight. We'll look forward to hearing from yours as well. 8, 8, 8, 8, 8, 7, 7, 3, 8, 1, 4, 5, 6, 7. Before we leave the, uh, the giving uh, topic, I think we need to think about how much we're blessed and, uh, and how much we've been prospered. And it doesn't stop at just our paycheck in the country we live exactly in today. Right. Uh, you know, think, I mean, in the, in the summertime, yeah. think about your garden when it's yeah. coming in. I mean, yeah. think about, uh, think about other areas where you prosper. Well, when, and when you get a little, uh, something extra, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe you got a gift or, uh, uh, made a little extra on a, a job you did or something, you know, uh, we ought to look for opportunities to give more, not less. It helps us to be thankful. Yeah. All right. Uh, you challenged the spelling of the apocryphon. Aaron in the chat room gave up. He and, got and, the and, buzzer. He failed. Yeah. 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 Uh, apocrypha. Do you know what? Some people might be even. There, there might be some who are confused as to what we're even talking about here. Apocrypha is A P O C R Y P H A. And you cheated. Uh, yeah, you cheated. Yeah. Uh, the Apocrypha is a collection of documents generally produced between the 2nd century B.C. and the 1st century A.D., which were not a part of the original Old Testament canon. Here's the names of the books that are included in the Apocrypha. 1st and 2nd Esdras, the rest of Esther, Song of the Three Holy Children, History of Susanna, Bell and the Dragon, Prayer of Manassas, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, First and Second Maccabees. Mm-hmm. The last seven of those are typically included in Bibles commissioned by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the Catholic Council of Trent in 1546 affirmed those books belonged in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, the title Apocrypha is translated from a term meaning hidden. And so they were supposedly hidden books that came, uh, came to be known later. Uh, 
the plural form, well, never mind that. The several reasons why. <laughs> what is the plural, plural form? Well, it, it's just found in another place in the New Testament, where the plural form of that word suggesting the idea of hidden. Oh, okay. Things. I thought you were okay. Uh, there are several reasons why the Apocrypha should be rejected uh, as a part of our Bibles. Number one, I'm going to make four arguments. We'll see if any of our listeners have, have anything to add to these or confirm these arguments. Jesus and the inspired writers of the New Testament quoted from the Old Testament a lot. Let's see. There are some 1,000 quotations or allusions from 35 of the 39 Old Testament books in the New Testament record. Okay, so we've got verification from the New Testament that all but four? Of There's the, 30, 35 of the 39 Old Testament all books. All but four are referenced in the New Testament. So we can say those 35 for should sure. be for sure in the Old Testament. Because they were quoted by inspired yeah. men in okay. the New Testament. Right. But... Neither Jesus nor any of the apostles ever quoted from one of those books that I just read the list of, the apocryphal books. Okay. So that would be an argument. In other words, if they're – now, you could make the same argument about About the other four. The other four of the Old Testament. But I'm just saying it seems odd that none of those books were ever quoted by an inspired person in the New Testament. Number two, the majority of uninspired authors of that time – did not make reference to the Apocrypha. And some condemned it. Oh. Uh, uh, in the 3rd century A.D., Origen and Tertullian recog- uh, uh, did not recognize the book, would not recognize the books of the Apocrypha as being in the canon. Uh, uh, okay. Several other, several other uninspired writers uh, only made reference to the Apocrypha to condemn it. It was shady in its time. Even back then. Okay. Uh, number three, the Apocryphal books make no direct claims of being inspired. Let me read. This is kind of interesting. I think, in fact, what we're saying here is they're self-condemning. Uh, you know, in, in the scriptures, very often we read, thus saith the Lord, or the word of the Lord came to me saying. That's the way that, that mm-hmm. our books of our Bible were written. But some of the documents in the Apocrypha actually confess non-inspiration. In Ecclesiasticus, for instance, the writer says, You are entreated, therefore, to read with favor and attention and to pardon us if any parts of what we have labored to interpret we may seem to fail in some of the phrases. Mm-hmm. Now, get that. There's never any of that doubtful wording in the books yeah. in our Bible. They claim to be from God. God put these words in my mouth, so yeah. forth, yeah. But here, the writer of one of these apocryphal books says, "Please excuse me if I made any mistakes." You know, <laughs> yeah. that's that's way different, right? Yeah, a little bit different tone there. Uh, and then also, uh, there are documented historical, geographical, chronological errors mm. uh, in the apocrypha. We won't go. I, I, I've got a list of some of those. I won't go in time. To, uh, I got a pretty thorough article here in my file by Wayne Jackson, and he lists some of those historical, <laughs> geographical, chronological errors. That couldn't be if they're inspired of God, right? God's not going to make a mistake about geography. Okay, very right? good. He's not going to make a mistake about uh, history or chronology. All so right. those in, are the reasons. In the chat room, uh, Brendan asked the question, uh, what about the argument that Jude alludes to the book of Enoch in the book of Jude? Uh, I think he's probably referencing verse 14 there. Where it says, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints. Was Jude referencing the book of Enoch there? Um, I, not necessarily. He's, he's, 
Jude's an inspired man. He knew that Enoch was a prophet, and he knew, and it was it was revealed to him that Enoch had prophesied of these times. Okay, so it didn't necessarily come from. It it wouldn't have to come from a a, an an apocryphal book, uh, as as. and in fact, I'm looking at that list well, again. We know of lots of prophets in the Old Testament that are mentioned, like the one who was killed by the lion because he went back home the wrong way. Uh, but we don't have no book that he right. wrote. Just right. because a person was a prophet doesn't mean that he wrote a book. So to say just because sure. Enoch was a prophet, that don't mean he wrote a book. It just means he had some prophetic message I, that God I'm, gave him to say. I'll, I'll, ch- I'll put a challenge out to our <laughs> chat room listeners that, because I'm thinking that there are some things mentioned in the New Testament some historical information, in fact, mentioned in the New Testament that we don't have the details about in the Old Testament. In other words, the New Testament makes a reference to an Old Testament event and includes some supplemental information that we didn't have in the Old Testament, but the New Testament supplied it. Well, that's simply because the guys who wrote the New Testament were inspired, and, right. and that knowledge was supplied to them. I, if, if In the chat room, if you can think of, of an example that I'm, I'm drawing a blank off the top of my head, but I think there are such okay. examples or at least a, a a few. Uh, uh, anyway. Okay. Uh, Brendan uh, also asks, uh, he says, uh, now, isn't First Maccabees more of a historical book than than religious, while Second tries to attach religious meaning to the Maccabees rebellion? You may be right, Brendan. I'm not up. I, I can't comment. And Aaron in the that. chat room says, I was in Windsor, England last year, and there was a restaurant called Bell and the Dragon. The establishment was very old, hundreds of years, though the building had been rebuilt. I wrote them to ask if the name dated back to the Reformation as a way of declaring allegiance to the Catholic Church, which accepted the Apocrypha, and the Protestants who did not. I didn't get any answer, so it remains my theory. I wonder. That, that sounds reasonable to me. Interesting. Uh, and he also says, oh, here's your example. He says that the Hebrew writer tells us that Abraham thought God could raise Isaac from the dead, but this is not information yeah. from Genesis. There you go. Perfect. Thank you, Aaron, yeah, for thanks, that. Thanks, Aaron. Right. All right. All right, so uh, getting a, f- a few more inputs here. Randy in Michigan says of the Apocrypha. Well, he doesn't comment on that one. Yeah. Um, and, oh, well, yes, he does. Uh, the, well, yeah, he says the Apocrypha was written by men. They're not part of, uh, they are not a part of God's holy word. They're not inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Ramona and, in Texas yeah. has sent us just one answer tonight. Glad to hear from you, Ramona. Thank you, Ramona. She says the New Testament has never quoted the books of the Apocrypha. They are not inspired. They can be viewed as novels or folklore. There were no prophets alive at the time of their writing. Interesting that she says that because if they're from the second, if they're from the second century BC to first century AD, that the primary time there is during that that period that we call the silence between the Testaments, which was prophesied. Correct. Well. We don't know that there weren't any oral prophets speaking during that. I don't think you could preclude the fact that there may have been prophets who spoke orally, but there was no written, no written prophecy during that period of time. But I, I'd come up short saying that we know that, the, that there was no revelation during that time. Thank you, Ramona, for that uh, comment. And uh, Ramona brings up a good point. You don't have to answer all the questions. You can just answer one if you'd like. We'll take uh, partial submissions. Thank you for that one. Uh, Ramona and uh, Stephen in Georgia says, uh, having read many of them, I find them to read like comic books. They're not inspired by the Holy Spirit, nor were they written by those who had seen Christ or had been given inspiration. First and second Maccabees are, however, good regarding uh, good reading regarding the history in the second century B.C. I make one exception to this view, and this concerns the book of Enoch, which was 
removed from the uh, the Tinic, which removes it from the realm of the Apocrypha, for not only does Jude verses 14 and 15 quote from the book, but the Jews for centuries prior to Christ read from and revered the book, so did the early church fathers read and teach from the book. It contains much in the way of prophecy and helps expose the doings of Satan. It is easy to understand why Satan would want this book removed. The book has always remained as a part of Scripture in the, in the Coptic Church as well as the Ethiopian Church, and copies were found in the Qumran caves, uh, uh, something with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, the information was uh, restored in the mid-1800s, and if one reads it and studies it with an open mind, you might be persuaded, as I was, that it belongs so as an important part of the There's some more information for Brendan in the chat room. Uh, Stevens, Stevens arguing for the book of Enoch. That it should be included. I, I would say, though, if it if we're going to a book that had been mostly lost and then has been brought back as some type of finding, then I don't think it lines up with God's promise that His word would remain forever if it is if it disappeared for yeah. time. Uh, I, I'm not willing to grant that that reference in Jude is a quote from the book of Enoch. It simply acknowledges that Enoch was a prophet. Uh, makes no mention of a book. Doesn't mention any, and really not a quotation. It just says he prophesied he of these things. He was a prophet and he prophesied of these things. So, I don't know. There's been a lot of scholarship invested in that. I'm sure. I'm not. I'm not up on it. But I would argue that uh, it does not meet the the rules of canon canonicity. Okay. Uh, so it's obviously something's been debated. All right. Um, and uh, Chris in the UK says they're non-canonical books that do not bear the mark of Scripture or its accredi- accreditation. For Jesus said, uh, and um, let me reference Matthew 23, <coughs> verse 35, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias, son of uh, Bacharias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar, the first martyr of Genesis to the last martyr of Second Chronicles, the first and last book of the Jewish Bible. What's uh, he saying? So he's saying that uh, Jesus didn't accredit those that period of time, I suppose, as being where it could have been inspired. I don't, I don't, I'm not following the argument. Uh, the testimony of early church fathers. Uh, Hang on, well, that's the so second, que- that's that a secondary okay. question. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing to remember: if, if there was going to be a book of Enoch, Enoch was pre-flood. Uh, we don't think they even had writing back then. Yeah, and if they had written it, it's not likely that it would have been carried over on the ark, so we would have lost it anyway. No possible it's, 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 way of recovering it. Huh? That's an interesting idea, Monty. I think that's a worthy argument. So oh, That's interesting, yeah. Uh, uh, in the, uh, Aaron says, the books of the Apocrypha are just like any other human writing. Some of it may be historical, but it's not inspired and therefore not authoritative. The testimony of the early church fathers is the same Uninspired, not authoritative. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, hang on to that. We're, we're going to talk about that more. Aaron but. in the chat room says, I think we can go farther than saying that New Testament writers never quoted from the Apocrypha. The New Testament does talk about the Old Testament as the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Luke 24, verse 44, which seems to be an endorsement of the Jewish view of the canon. Yeah, That's interesting. I think good argument. Okay. All right. Very interesting thoughts about the Apocrypha. Again, we should be we should be aware of it. We should know that there is such a thing. Have have some sense of why it's not in our Bibles. Our Bibles uh, are comprised of books that were regarded in their day as authoritative, inspired works from God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, we know that the people of that era had a sense of whether these books were inspired or not. 
and they regarded them as so. They quoted from them as so. They didn't quote from those books in that manner, and so we, we would that'd be our principal reason for rejecting them. Okay. Okay. We got another question, Noah, from the same listener. What about the testimony of the early church fathers? Uh, I think that's an interesting question to ask. You know what? What when we're talking about the early church fathers, what we're talking about is people who lived near the time of the inspired writings of the New Testament, at the tail end of the period of time in which God was inspiring uh, men to write down His New Testament word and will, and from that time and then for the next couple of centuries. There were some men who did a good bit of writing, uh, who commented on various doctrines in the church, uh, and they are, they have been branded as the early church fathers. Just simply some some Bible students of that era who wrote, commented, and quoted on the Scripture. Uh, what can we learn from them? Okay, I got I got. Uh, some positive uses of their quotations and some negative ones. First, they cite texts from the New Testament, thus confirming the accurate conveyance of the Scriptures to us. Notice, we talked about this when we were talking about manuscript evidence recently. Right, right. One of the ways we know that we have a reliable copy of the New Testament, for instance, is not just in the actual copies that come down to us today, but in the abundance of Quotes of the originals. So there's some benefit to their writings because it verifies that the 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 what we've got is accurate today. Exactly of the of the New Testament. Okay, the, good. Second, I had we done a study in one of our teenage classes about how we got the Bible, and if I remember correctly, from these church fathers' writings, we could reconstruct the whole entire New Testament with the exception of about five verses. Yeah, okay. of copies. I've, 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 they I've, quoted they where we tend to just reference a verse. And maybe use a part of it in something. If we're writing something, they tended to quote expansive volumes in in their writings. Okay. I've heard something similar. Yeah, I've heard something similar. I don't know. I don't know what percentage, but it's a high percentage. You could reconstruct the very book that high. We studied from so it was either five or seven verses that wow. you could. I didn't know it was that much. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Second argument: a positive use of the of the quotations from the early church fathers is they reveal how widely the New Testament documents had been circulated throughout the ancient world within the first couple hundred years. These were widely distributed. Why the, the, the inspired books of our New Testament were widely distributed. Okay. Showing that they were revered as being something from God. Exactly. Okay. Third, they document the early stages of a great apostasy in the church. In other words, you read those church fathers, you're going to find a lot of errors starting to creep in, too. Okay. And you see how fast that can happen okay. uh, if it's not guarded against. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, some negative uses of the quotations of the church fathers. View It's wrong. We should never view these writings as if they were inspired. We should not use these documents as authoritative in establishing doctrinal practices and we should uh, be careful trying to prove pet opinions and theories by referring to some quotation of these writers because mm. they were not inspired. Good points, good points. Uh, Stephen in Georgia says, uh, if you've ever played the, the telephone game with a group, you will begin to understand that those who are at the front end of this parlor game retain a good recollection, recollection of the phrase. By halfway through, there's little resemblance of the original phrase. So it is with the early church fathers. In the middle of the second century, Irenaeus was already bemoaning the fact that the doctrine that the apostles taught was already being compromised, and he refused or he referred to those Christians as apostates and that they should be excommunicated from the fellowship. 
Personally, I use many of the early writings to gain understanding and to use as an aid in my teaching with the caveat that these are not Holy Spirit-inspired. Many of these writings square up with the Scriptures, and where that is the case, they give extra credence to the doctrine being taught. Okay, I think that's exactly right, Stephen. I agree with you. Uh, Chris in the U.K. says... Uh, different church fathers take different views on different doctrines. All early church fathers quote – every time an early church father is quoted, it needs to fall in line with Scripture or they are awry, much like the statements you will hear on Sunday morning from the pulpit. You have to check them out. You need to be a Berean, he says. All right. Uh, and then uh, Aaron says uh, the testimony of early church fathers is uninspired and not authoritative. It is sometimes interesting to see how doctrines and practices developed over time but when we read the writings of these men, we mu- these men, we must understand that any such writing may contain elements of the apostasy that Paul said was to come in First Timothy chapter four, verse one. So, thank you, Aaron. That, that that's a good point he made. Paul was saying, "Hey, there's going to be some error that's coming." So, when you read these early church fathers, be aware that they could be fulfilling what Paul was foretelling. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, in the chat room, uh, Brendan mentions one of these early writers, Polycarp. He was a very early one. Uh, there are others well-known. Um, uh, uh, Anthony in the chat room says, I have always been surprised that Catholics rely in part on these because even Paul warned of apostasy that was already underway. The fathers could very well be heretics. Yeah, how would you know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. Good point. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. And uh, Brendan said, so then would one use their writings as a commentary? I think you could. I think Stephen's point was right. You, you know, some are good, some are bad. You could use them, but that's what we do with with contemporary contemporary commentary. Yeah, you know, I've got some commentaries uh, that I wouldn't I wouldn't trust any further than I could throw them. Uh, and you just got to be careful. Any any uninspired writings of men, it would include anything that you and I or Monty might write or say on or a virtual say. Bible study. If, if it's if we're not inspired, we could be wrong. You got to check it out. Yeah. Okay, time for a break. Time goes week's bullet point. When we come back, exiting or withdrawing membership from a church. Some some good questions about membership in a church, uh, and that's going to be that. Yeah, I think many of us who will have had to answer that question in the past. How do you how do you get out of a church? When is it time to leave? Decide to do it. Yeah. Well, when, what are some reasons why? So uh, we'll take your thoughts. We'll come back on the other side of the break after this week's bullet point. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. As a new year begins, it would be a worthwhile activity for all of us to look back over the past year and see how we've done. What we have in mind here is a retrospective look at our most important work, that which we have done for the Lord. So, Christian, how have you done? Are you a stronger Christian today than you were at the start of the last year? Have you read and studied your Bible more than ever before? Have you established a more consistent practice of prayer? In regards to the worship assemblies and public Bible studies, has your attendance been steady and faithful? God expects us to give liberally of our financial blessings. Have you done so? Have you developed a readiness to help the needy? Brotherly love is a defining sign of discipleship. Have you grown in this area? Have you done more than just shake hands and say hello at the services? Teaching the lost is a job that belongs to every Christian, including you. Have you taught others about salvation through Christ? Have you invited others to attend the assemblies? Have you mailed bulletins, tracts, and so forth to lost people you know? There are, obviously, lots of ways to teach. Have you been active in this important work? 
Have you visited the sick and shut-ins? Have you treated others like you would want to be treated if you were in their shoes? Have you tried to encourage those who are weak and struggling spiritually? You see, there's actually a lot that you can do and should be doing. Look back. See how you've done. Look forward. See what more you can do. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. My name is Roger Toomes, and me and my wife love to listen to the virtual Bible study on Thursday nights. Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program tonight. Remind you, this program is brought to you by the College U Church of Christ. Find out more about us by visiting our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com, or better yet, send us an email and ask us a question in particular. We could use it in one of these uh, programs where we talk about various listener questions, or come and visit with us, find out more about our meeting place and our times of meeting at thevirtualbiblestudy.com. The next question is a good one. All right, the next question says, what is a proper way to exit or withdraw membership from a church? What are some good reasons to withdraw your membership from a certain work? If the reason is to be with a more conservative congregation, is that a good enough reason? What are some things to look for in another church, and what questions should we ask? Monty, have uh, Monty ever had to leave a church? Yeah. yeah. A difficult decision, wasn't it? It was a difficult decision. I stayed at that particular congregation I'm thinking out for a long time, maybe further than I should have, should have, hoping that maybe some change could be affected and that maybe I could help with that. Yeah. But when it came time to do it, you know, it, the certain circumstances came up that let me know that, it's the time to right. go. Okay. And so we left. All right. But I appreciate the listener's question yeah. and concern on how, on that. I, I, I left. Uh, I um, I wrote an article one time trying to remember the gist of it. How, uh, on leaving a congregation, there's some ways that you will leave. One is that you will leave when you die. Mm-hmm. Another is you will leave in good standing. Mm-hmm. In other words, uh, if you move from here to Texas – you're not going to. You need to be a member of a church in Texas, not one in Tennessee. And right. so you're going to you're going to leave the the fellowship of this local body and and go to another one. So you can you you could die. You could leave in good standing. You could leave in bad standing. You could be withdrawn from. You could be disciplined because mm-hmm. you've become unfaithful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I suppose a fourth way would be you might choose even if you're staying in the same locality, you might choose to leave. As I think this question suggests, maybe you have become dissatisfied. I think that's what Monty was just suggesting. Maybe you've become concerned that the church where you are is not taking a, a proper doctrinal stand, and you, you don't feel like you can participate in that any longer. Yeah, it's a, it is a difficult question. You know, we even see in the in the church's uh, letter to the churches of Asia in, in Revelation, there are some very bad things going on. Yet there's still people in those congregations that are pleasing to God, and 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 that's a challenging. It thing is a to challenging me. thing, and I think it goes to the question that's being asked here: When would you say, "Oh, I got to go"? You right. know, I can't put up with that any longer. I'm not going to be a part of that uh, uh, for any more time. Right. How would you make that determination? What would be the factors? Um, and the point of the matter being is, is it's not as cut and dry on the surface as you would think. Exactly. Yeah, okay. One thing that I I think would be a factor in this is, uh, by the way, when the first part of that question, what's the proper way to exit or withdraw membership from a church? The question I think implies a, a negativity. Sometimes we sever our relationship with congregations on good terms for good reasons. For good reasons. If I'm moving. 
500 miles away, I'm obviously going to have to leave the fellowship of this church and find another one in the new place where I'm going. Or maybe you're, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, it happens. It maybe, happens. It happens more often than ever in our sort of mobile society. Or we, uh, <coughs> our friend James Buchanan, who was in this area not too long ago, and he left in church so he could move to Africa to preach. Yeah. That, that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I think the questioner is more asking about negative things. Why yeah. would I leave a church? One thing that I think has to come into play is there's no perfect churches. So in any church that you're a member of, there's some things that need to be changed, need to be improved upon and so forth. Right. But if the, if the, th- if there are things, if there are unscriptural or unbiblical or sinful things being done and I would be forced to be participant in that, then I can't do that. Defile your garments. Right. In other words, in other words, uh, let's say that the uh, uh, the church here decides to start start using its money to do some unscriptural thing with it. Yeah. Well, by virtue of my contribution to the treasury of this local congregation, then I am a participant in that. If even if I don't want to be, yeah. and and I think that would that would indicate. I got to make a, a, a pretty quick decision about that. I can't continue if they're going to do that. And I believe that what they're what they're doing uh, uh, with the money that part of the money I've contributed, and I believe that's not scriptural or not moral or not right. I can't continue in that. No, so so if it forces me to be a part of it, I got to. Or if my part being part of that group. Uh, leads people to believe that I approve of that just by being a part of it. Uh, And there there are certain things going on where me being a part of a group, and maybe the group has stated that our objective is this, something contrary to God's will, and and just me being a part of that would would sort of lead my seal of approval to that, then I can't. But there's going to be things going on in any congregation that I'm going to disagree with, and there's going to be sinful things going on among members of any congregation that you could you could find that we obviously we're not going to find a perfect church. Yeah. So like you said, I think it's not a cut and dried, easy answer to right. that question. Yeah. A lot of things. And, and every case, I would argue, too, that every case is going to be case specific. It's, it's going to have its own unique circumstances. Every congregation does. And so you're going to have you, I don't think you can just write a checklist and say, OK, uh, these are the things on the Here's checklist. Here's the line. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brendan says, no matter what the reason, I do believe that if we do not exhaust all attempts and efforts to try and fix what we see is wrong, then we do not have reason enough to leave. I think that's true. I mean, well, we, we definitely need to make every effort we can. Yeah. But but we may just decide, hey, I could I could stay here and continue to try, or perhaps my uh, efforts would be better somewhere else. Bonnie? Well, there's one church that we left at. We, that's why we left, but it was in the same basic region. It was about as near to go one as it was to the other, but this other one was a smaller church, and I felt like I could be a greater benefit to right. them and right. help in that smaller location than the church that I left that had an abundance of men that was able to do the work. And so there's a decision made not because of some doctrinal position, but because you thought you personally could be more effective, be more fruitful 
in the Lord's service. There, that's there's a, that's, other that's considerations. A worthy, that's well. a worthy thing. Yeah, maybe your own spiritual well-being. Maybe well, you, we left uh, a congregation about that for that reason one time because I didn't feel like at that particular place with the circumstances that was there that me or my family were growing as we should. And my first responsibility is to get me to heaven. Right. And, and so family. in order to do that and to guide my family in that, then I felt it was time for us to leave. Well, you just think, I mean, you think about your kids. I mean, is it, is it profitable for me to be somewhere where my kids have to see brethren button heads constantly? I mean, maybe they're making some progress, but it's still not necessarily profitable for my kids. All right, real quickly, let's go to some listener responses here on email. Randy in Michigan says, I was a member of a church that had a, uh, that had a young man and his family who believed in the 70 AD teaching, and he taught when he could to other members of the church. As far as I know, I was told by many of the members they did not believe in the 70 AD teaching, but they told me they would uh, remain continual in fellowship with him. I studied six or seven years, uh, over, and over that time we we all agreed he was a false teacher. He was really more than a good friends with the members, and I, too, was good friends with most of the members. I could not stay and be in fellowship with him being a false teacher. I still love all the members of that church as well as the young man and his family. As far as looking for another church, I looked for one that was faithful to God and his holy word in all things as far as I could tell. Yeah, thank you, Randy. And it's a it's a tough decision, one that we've got to make. Uh, Terry uh, sends in a question. He says, you certainly have enough to talk about tonight, so this is just food for thought. It would be interesting to me anyway to address the uh, opposite withdrawal proposed in number three. That is, if the reason is to be with a more liberal congregation, is that a good enough reason? This, of course, supposes that it is possible for a congregation to be too conservative in their interpretation and practices. What about Terry's question? Would Would you want to leave to be with a more liberal church? Well, that, you know, that's hard yeah, to define. I mean, you know, this this uh, nomenclature, conservative and liberal, that's our terminology. You yeah. know. And and it's, really, it's really uh, right or wrong. Yeah, and you know, if if what we mean by too conservative means they're binding things that the Bible doesn't bind, then you can't go along with that either. If we mean liberal, is that they're loosing things that the Bible binds? They can't do that. You got to be right there to be right. Yeah. Uh, and so if if Terry is suggesting here's this group and they're binding things that I think the Bible doesn't bind. Yeah, that'd be that'd be a doctrinal issue that you you would certainly have to consider for leaving that congregation. Yeah. All right. Uh, Stephen in Georgia says in the church of the first century, there were a few bad apples to be shunned. But by and large, there was no great apostasy as of yet. Not so today. Recently, in the last few years, uh, I had to leave three churches, all for different reasons. I could not help support these churches financially, spiritually or emotionally. I'm running out of places to worship and fellowship. The real problem was not the problem itself, but the fact that they didn't care and were content to accept the status quo as things were. There was no venue for airing out the differences. I'm not referring to trivial things. I've been a Christian for over 36 years. Since there is no proper way to place membership described in the scriptures, then to me it follows that there's no proper way to withdraw membership except to stop going. Many of the so-called conservative churches today are uh, pharisaical and legalist with a hateful attitude uh, for any brethren who don't wave the same banner that they wave. There's no real grace practice there. Only talked about grace. On the other hand, I've learned about a church that passes the collection plate about six times in a service to help pay for their swimming pool and new gymnasium they're building. Would I support that that kind of blind abuse? I don't think so. The average Christian today, it seems, will accept just about anything but the truth because they don't study for themselves themselves. 
as folks who used to decades ago. Revelation chapter 20 verse or 2 verse 20 says, I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants away. Jesus had a hard time finding a healthy church in the first century. I wish you better hunting than I have had. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Chris in UK <laughs> says, uh, is there a proper way to exit or withdraw membership from a church? My answer assumes it's to move to say a different state or city. It would be to request a letter of recommendation from the elders to take to the new church and have a kind of handover between the two churches and the eldership. You know, the idea of carrying a letter, you know, a, a letter was written for Apollos when he went left Ephesus and went mm-hmm. to Corinth. Mm-hmm. That's a biblical precedent that I think we should employ more thoroughly. We okay. don't, but okay. that's certainly a biblical precedent. He said, what are some good reasons to withdraw your membership from a certain work? Uh, Chris says, if you're no longer needed, I don't get that. He says, you're no longer, if you're no longer qualified, you have brought someone on to take your place and now they are ready to take over. I'm not sure I understand that answer completely. Uh, he says, in answer to the question, if the reason is to be with a more conservative congregation, is that good enough reason? He says, possibly, as, as to how do you know that won't change? Yeah. Uh, what do you look for? He says, you should look for a biblical, Christ-centered, gospel-focused. Whatever you look for, don't let it be a taste issue or a comfort thing. Ultimately, it should be where God has called you. I would argue God calls us by the gospel, and therefore it has to be in line with the, the word of God. Uh, he says, what questions should you ask? And then, he doesn't answer that. Okay. All right. And then Aaron in Baton Rouge says, if one wishes to join himself to a different congregation than the one with which he presently worships, I don't know that there is any binding biblical example of how to do so. It seems like common courtesy to notify both congregations of your intentions rather than just start attending somewhere else. If I leave because I have taken a position of conscience about some practice, then I believe I owe it to the group I am leaving to explain why I believe they are in error. More conservative is a phrase that might be difficult to define, but if you believe that one group is following the Bible and another is not, then in the best uh, that's the best possible reason. That's really the only criterion you really need. Thank you, Aaron, for that. All right. Uh, Brendan mentions an article he remembers I wrote, uh, and I don't even remember it. Oh, way to <laughs> an go, article Brandon. titled Neither to the Left or to the Right. Uh, so I guess I did. I guess I did write an article along those lines that we don't, it's, you can't be too conservative or too liberal and be right. It, it, that's our terminology. We, we, we can't go to the right hand or the left. We've got to stay in the Word of God. All right. And we can't go any farther on this one because we need to get a break. And when we get back, well, what about playing religious songs on an instrument? Well, you're not singing them, just playing the music. Okay. We'll talk about that when we, we get got to hurry. We've got to hurry as we go to the top of the hour. Don't go anywhere. We're back right after this. Enjoying the virtual Bible study? Email a friend during this break and tell them to join in on the discussion. There's more exciting Bible study after this commercial. I'm Dan Quillen, a member of the College U Church of Christ, with some thoughts about making plans. Have you made any definite plans for your spiritual life and for your service for God? We spend time prioritizing personal lives and setting goals in our careers, but do we think in those terms about the most important thing, our soul? Ask yourself these questions. What am I planning to do for God today? In the coming week, what good thoughts will I accomplish for Him? At this time next year, where do I want to be in my spiritual life? In five years from now, how will I have changed, improved, and grown in my work for God? Ten years from today, how will my family be? How will I have helped them grow spiritually? Twenty years down the road, how will I be doing? 
As I approach death, what will have been the most important things in my life? Where will I be in eternity? We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. Recent research by the Barna Group shows that the unchurched are becoming less responsive to churches' efforts to connect with them. For example, conventional wisdom says the best way to get people to visit a church is to have friends invite them. And the conventional wisdom continues to be right. The churchless who were interviewed were most open to, quote, a friend of yours inviting you to attend a local church, with 20% expressing strong interest and nearly 50% willing to consider a church based upon this factor. An invitation from a friend is the top-rated way churches can establish connections with the unchurched. However, the Barnett Group's data raised questions about the long-term durability of this approach. Twenty years ago, 65% of churchless Americans were open to being invited to church by a friend. Today, that percentage has slipped to less than half, 47%. That's from the Barnett Group. The Word of God says in Revelation 22, verse 17, The Spirit and Bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Are you listening? There's going to be a test on this stuff. Stay tuned. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. How about we come back right now? We messed up on that. We got an out, we got an outgo for an incoming. Yeah, we're confused, but we got we got no time to correct it because okay. we're running short. Uh, the next question. All right, next question. This is a sincere question I received just the other day concerning a well-known religious song like "What a Friend We Have in Jesus." And this and this emailer even sent a link to an instrumental version. An exclusively inter- instrumental version of what we, a friend we have in Jesus. He says, what if this song was played on an instrument, no singing, just playing? Would playing such a song be a sin? Would it just be ill-advised? Is it a stumbling block? Would it make a difference where or when it was played? What if there were others present listening while he played? What if he was singing and they weren't? What if they were all singing? Uh, uh, well, he goes on to ask, what if the artist played a secular song What if he thanked God after the secular song for his talent and offered it to him? Would it be different if he offered God the religious song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus? I'm not sure about that last part of that question because I don't know what it means to offer something to God like that. But let's let's deal with the first part of the question. So here's this song, well-known spiritual song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. So I'm trying to learn to play the guitar, and I start picking that thing out on a guitar. Is that a sin? Well, it goes a little farther. There are a lot of songs that have religious words applied to them. A lot of classical songs, uh, Mendelssohn and Bach and Beethoven have. We've got songs in our songbooks that are that words are to their their music. Uh, and I don't know if the song was originally written as a religious song or not, but it's you know it's it's it's, it's a familiar yeah, tune. Yeah, it, it, at bottom line, it's just a series of of tones, musical right. notes. Right. The, they don't mean anything. Right. It's the words of the song that convey the message. Yeah. And so you know, I, I that's don't, one reason why we don't think we should have instrumental music in our worship because they it, can't convey they a message. Teach. Yeah, they yeah. don't teach. Yeah. Uh, now, so I would say. From a purely technical standpoint, I don't know how you can dim pecking out notes on a piano, strumming notes on a guitar. I don't know how you can condemn that because those those are uninspired notes that were arranged by uninspired men, and they don't necessarily convey any message at all. So, but now he asked a follow up question: uh, Would it be ill advised? Would it be a stumbling mm-hmm. block? Yes, maybe. And that being the case, I would say, let's don't even take, let's don't even go there. Yeah. All right. 
Uh, Guest 268 says, I've found most songs begin with folk songs with different lyrics, if they have them at all. Usually it was a worldly song to begin with. Yeah. Then set to music, set to, with the lyrics. So, uh, so I, but I, I think key here is, is it ill-advised? Possibly so. And would it be a stomach block to someone? Maybe so. And that being the case, then I think I would just judge not to do it. But as my judgment, I'm not. I don't. I can't bind that on somebody else. But I. I that's what I'm gonna do. Money. I used to know a song leader who was pretty gifted on the piano, and probably other instruments too. But I know that one. And in the privacy of his home, when he was trying to learn a new song, he would play those notes so he could get that melody in his mind <coughs> so that he could sing it. Now, he wasn't doing it in any other venue. There weren't other people around. And so, to me, that doesn't seem... In that sense, it was an aid. That was an aid for him to learn the song, but it wasn't something he was using as a perp- as a worship. Yeah. And I think we place, maybe place too much emphasis on what we're physically doing and not our motivation for it sometimes because we don't have any authority to worship God with instrumentalists and music. But there's nothing wrong with us using that instrument of music for the purpose of learning that melody so we so, can properly so, lead that song. Okay. Your comment, Monty, addresses the part of his question, would it make a difference where or when it was played? I think yeah. that makes all the difference. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what if others were present listening while he played? Well, then you got to begin to wonder, it may be stump, a stomach then. block, yeah. uh, ill-advised. Yeah. What if he was singing and they were now we got singing with instrumental accompaniment. Now we've crossed the line. What if he was singing and they weren't? Well, now we're singing spiritual songs to musical accompaniment and that's what we're not supposed to do. Yeah. What if they were all singing? Well then we've got full blown instrumental music and worship and we've had lots of studies in the Virgin Bible study that show that in the New Testament we do not have authority. For if that. you're listening to this for the first time and you're unfamiliar with why we believe that we shouldn't be worshiping with instruments, look back at our archives for programs that have dealt with that. But just very quickly in a brief summary, we believe that we don't have any authority to do it, just like we wouldn't want to bring in other things in our worship that we don't find God specifying in the New Testament. So it is with instruments. God hasn't specified. He told us to sing, and so that's what we do. Yeah. Okay. And, and it's the idea of... I, I'm real good on the guitar, and I can play this song and offer it to God. Well, I don't. God never asked me to offer Him that sort of thing. Yeah. I, you know, we've asked, we've answered this before in the virtual Bible study. What if I'm a real gifted auto mechanic and I can tear down an engine and build it back with my eyes blindfolded? Yeah. Can I offer that to God? What's that mean? Offer that? I don't know. Uh, we, we have talent, but that that does not mean that every talent we possess is something that should be used in the worship services. Right. All right. We ought to use those talents to the glory of God by submitting our, our will to his and in the areas that we exercise those talents, and we can't just you know, bring and make them Make that a part of worship. Right. All right. Aaron in uh, Baton Rouge says, the real question here is about worship. There's nothing inherently sinful with instrumental music, but it is not what God has asked for, for as worship. I believe that this particular song is so well known that it would be practically impossible to play it without associating it with the words that offer praise to our Savior so I believe that it would be hard to simply play the music in a way that does not offer worship. On the other hand, I, if people... In other words, if, if you heard that song, you'd be thinking the words. We yeah. heard that melody. That's yeah. what we'd be doing. Yeah. Oh, that, oh, that's where it says, oh, yeah, yeah, right. That's what, yeah. Uh, on the other hand, if people have never heard it before, simply playing the notes isn't going to invoke any worship in that audience. If I did not know the song and were trying to teach myself how it goes, I might pick out the notes on a piano or other instrument, but I am not offering worship at that point. Of all the other hypothetical questions here... They all have the same answer. If you're going to offer something to God, make sure it is what he asked for. What he asked for Christians to offer musically is the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Do not bring something else. 
to the altar. I like the way Aaron concluded uh, there. Randy in Michigan says real quick, uh, he references Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16. We're to speak to ourselves, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody in your heart. To sing, speaking to one another tells me that we're all to sing. There's no authority for a few to sing. And the kinds of songs Christians are to sing, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Uh, Colossians 3.16 says we're to teach and admonish one another. Again, all, to, all are to sing. Singing is in your heart to the Lord. We don't have to wonder what kind of singing and the kind of song God wants in worship to him. God tells us. All right. And Brendan in the chat room, uh, let me get your comments on this, Dad. What is the purpose of their assembling? That is the question. If it is a concert where hymns are played and sung for entertainment, I don't see it as a sin, says Brendan. What do you think about that? I've got a different view on that, Brendan. If these are songs that are spiritual in nature, then either they are, in other words, in the singing of this song, are we singing them to worship God or are we singing them for entertainment? If we're singing them to worship God, then it ought to be done the way that he authorizes in the New Testament yeah. without instrumental company. If we're doing it for our entertainment, then why are we using spiritual things to entertain ourselves with? That's the, that's the very notion of sacrilege. Mm-hmm. And so, we should not be using those in a in a in a secular. In other words, we should not. Profaning them, in other words. We, we should not be talking. Yeah, profaning them. Uh, mm-hmm. So either way you go about it, if it's worship, then it shouldn't be with instruments. If it's for entertainment, we shouldn't be using those songs anyway. So either way you go about it, I think don't do it. Yeah. Right. Okay. Monty, I agree. For instance, the what a what a friend we have in Jesus. I mean, how does how do you listen to that song for entertainment without? You know, I couldn't because if I heard that melody, whether there was any words or not, You'd be thinking that's about. what would come to my mind because that's what I've been trained all my life that that melody means. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we were watching an old TV show, and the, the theme song or whatever that went with it, when you think of the Dave Ramsey show on the radio, when I hear that, I forget the name of it, but when I hear that jingle, I think of Dave Ramsey. So if I'm listening to the melody of what a friend we have in Jesus, I'm thinking those words. I'm thinking of, of, it puts me in a spiritual mind frame. Okay. So I couldn't do that. All right. Uh, All right. We're out of time. Uh, Aaron says uh, Aaron says he, do, he does not use spiritual songs for entertainment. Using God's name as vain is to use it in an empty way, a way without meaning. If you're singing songs about God without really meaning uh, praise, then that use is in vain. Uh, oh, and, and Brendan says, now what I was talking about, now, was was it wrong that I sang Mozart's Requiem Mass in my high school? It is a religious work, but performed for entertainment as at the choir concert. Again, I'm, I'm going to say if it's entertainment, then let's not be using uh, uh, spiritual things in, in an irreverent or not religious or not reverent manner. And uh, Aaron says, how is that different from Belshazzar using the vessels of a temple of the temple for his party? They were just cups, right? But, but they were special cups. They were special. They had been sanctified when and, they were and, made. And they were and, 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 and so party. his acts showed a disrespect for something that and should have, have been respected. you have to believe that's what he meant. Yeah, exactly. Okay, we could go on and on. And, uh, Brendan, maybe if you'd like to talk about that more, we can do that over email or talk it out on another program. But uh, we, we've got to call it quits for now. We're out of time. Out of time. Good discussion tonight. Yeah, very interesting. I think great questions. And we, we, we encourage your questions. If you've got some like that, We'll add them to the stack, and we'll we'll have. 
Because we like doing these kind of programs, and we do them fairly regularly, so send them in. Send them in. Thanks for all those who submitted those questions tonight, and thanks for everyone for your answers in the chat room and over email tonight. Dad, thank you for your time. Good discussion. Thanks, Jacob. And, Monty, thanks for coming and being a part of the program. Thank you. And uh, we hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study his inspired word, the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.